Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. The purpose of this podcast is to make you and me healthier, wealthier, and wiser every single day. A big part of that comes from us taking responsibility for our thoughts, words, and actions. In essence, taking responsibility for our lives. Today, I talk with Adam Creek, a gold medal Olympian and author of The Responsibility Ethic, 12 Strategies Exceptional People Use to Do the Work and Make Success Happen. This is a textbook on how to achieve in life. I hope you learn from it like I did. learning podcast. Can we start our conversation this morning with what is motivating you in life right now? And what are two or three things you want to make sure we get across to the listener today? Well, what's motivating me right now are my consulting clients. They are incredibly motivating. I've got a number of, I guess, coaching clients and often my coaching clients are senior leaders in midsize or large organizations. And then I end up coming in and working with their teams, with their departments, and with their entire uh, companies. And so we have uh, very unique challenges that each of them are facing, but there's certainly similarities. They're all high-growth companies. They're achieving a lot, and so they're having the pains of growth. And uh, we're and so we're solving, you know, hiring issues, people issues, communication issues, you know, interdepartment issues, breaking down silos, you know, empowering uh, leadership, empowering ownership stance, this uh, this kind of thing, and that's what we work on. And so I've got I've got uh, consulting partners in the wealth management space or consulting clients in the wealth management space, in uh, the mortgage space, in the, I'm trying to think, in the jet engine space, (laughs) in the natural resources uh, pipeline space, in the, uh, what do you want to call it, tech, call it the tech space, you know, computers. And uh, I'm probably leaving some off the list, but it's it's always interesting. And I'm always working with someone new, and I'm really fascinated by how uh, delivering, you know, a combination of of my background of of experience and high performance as an athlete translated into you know of you know a solid you know decade and a half in this world of of consulting and working with leaders coming into an organization and how it can really speed up the results, speed up the execution, speed up everything that they deliver. And so that's that's what's keeping me busy. That's what's keeping me motivated. You know, beyond just the regular throes of life, I've got three young kids and a beautiful wife. And so uh, just making and a puppy now. We got a <laughs> we got a puppy. <laughs> so you know, beyond just uh, family stuff, that's uh, that's keeping me busy and motivated. But 
from a, a broader standpoint of what sort of message would I want to get across to the listener, it's that values drive everything. Values drive everything. And if you become very clear on your values as an individual, if you become very clear on your values as a leader, if you become very clear on your values for the team, and then truly understand the utility of those values, it can really set a foundation where you have a very strong sense of peace, a very strong sense of confidence, and better ability to achieve your goals and bring other people along for that ride. So if there is one message, it would be to get clear on your values, one, and two, get clear on how to use those values for optimal leverage and optimal results. Excellent. There's a lot to unpack there. On the consulting side, how have you seen that evolving as you've worked your way through COVID the last two years? Well, consult, I did a lot of live events pre-COVID. <laughs> with with lots of people sitting very closely together. And often my presentations were very interactive and I'd be working with the with the crowds. And that certainly didn't happen. So when COVID hit, we'd been doing really well in our business. So my initial thought was, huh, like this is look at SARS, look at everything that has happened in the past. And we just shut, I just shut everything down for eight months. And there were other things I wanted to do with my life. So I I ripped out the chimney of my house from the top to the bottom (laughs) and everything that comes along with that. And I rebuilt my kitchen and my basement. And, and then I woke up eight months later and COVID was still here. Uh, so, (laughs) so it was still here. So uh, I did the basics, like we were talking about before uh, the call. You know, there's a moment of fear. There's a moment of fear when you realize that you are change, the change is harder and it's stronger and it's more, you know, angular (laughs) than you thought it was going to be. And I certainly lived through that where I was like, oh crap, I, you know, I made a bet, you know, to take a break and this is, it's not working the way that I thought. So, you know, I went, you know, and part of the renovation project, I built a home studio, turned my garage into a, you know, into a place with, you know, cameras and lights and, and that kind of thing. So I essentially just got on the phone and phoned up all past, like started phoning up past clients and pivoted into the online space and just started to fill my book doing basic sales and and networking and relationship building and what happens and I notice that this happens all the time as a you know as having been an independent consultant for you know for 15 years is that when the calendar is empty you just you get on the phone you start making conversations and 3 months later 6 months later you have more work than you know what to do with and people have problems businesses have problems constantly and the when you can figure out how to serve those problems uh, and if you're a relatively intelligent and hardworking person you can figure that out so go out and do that and then you have yeah like i said you have more work than you can than you can deal with and that's you know that's my current stage right now which is funny if i were to think back to last january you know, one year ago, we were just actually we had just finished our renovation, and then our basement flooded. Uh, so it was, it was, you know, okay. And COVID's still here, so it was. You know, I was in a pit of hurt 
you know, the house had to move out of the house, you know, nothing on the books, COVID was here. So the, you know, but the same thing that, uh, you know, you get distracted by the shiny things with the, you got to stick with the basics. And that's, you know, that's what I learned as an athlete. You know, we were, you know, I'm an old, you know, Olympic rower. And you'd notice that the athletes who are distracted by the shiny things, you know, maybe they just didn't have the skill or talent and they're trying to compensate for that. But the other piece was that it was just a bad mental state, you know, trying to find the, the shiny thing when the basics, unless you've mastered the basics, the shiny objects don't help you very much. And they're only like dressing on the cake. It's, you know, it's the hard grinding work. And then you can add the shiny objects, you know, as you're looking for, you know, the marginal gains, you know, the the quarter of an inch, you know, the eighth of an inch, the sixteenth of an inch. But when you're looking for half a foot, you know, a yard, you know, let's, you know, let's move it to metrics. You're looking for, you know, meters <laughs> instead of millimeters. The, like the, the basics, you know, it's understanding the basics and doing the basics well. And if you can do the basics better and understanding which basics truly matter, then, you know, for example, in rowing, you'll have this debate about rowing well or rowing powerfully. And, uh, you know, you obviously, the, you know, the motion is quite simple. You put your blade in the water. And if you can really grab onto that water and lock in and do it really smoothly and then take the blade out very smoothly, then you're going to be faster than someone who just smashes it in and then pulls it out. But on a scale of what's more important, you know, a very, you know, smooth and technically precise and, and perfect stroke, you know, that would look you know, artistic from the outside or a stroke that's absolutely raw and aggressive and powerful in our sport you know the raw aggressive power is more important than the perfect looking stroke so you you don't have to look perfect to be the best and that was it was funny because when we won the olympic gold medal a lot of the the feedback from the peanut gallery was oh look at these guys they don't row very well yes yeah we don't <laughs> row very well we well, in the way that you'd like to see, you know, and it's, we don't row very pretty, but we row for, with results. With power and results. Power and results. And it's in, at the end of the day, they, you know, it comes down to the mental piece, which is applicable to all of our businesses, right? And I'm sure you're thinking about your business right now. What is that one thing you can do that is, you know, the power piece? And it's not the pretty piece. It's not about looking pretty. It's about finding that optimal leverage point to find maximal power to deliver results. Cause that's, that's truly, or maybe that's not what everybody's after, but that's, that's what motivates me. <laughs> Anyways, you know, I like, I like delivering results and I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out what, what is that thing that I can do more of that has more effect? And what is that thing I can do less of that will have less effect? And Adam, have you ever looked at it and said that the way your team approached it, it's a very Canadian-like approach, right? A very workman-like approach. We're not out to look the best. We're out to win, right? The Canadian hockey teams, we, we've been picked on for decades and decades. We don't look as good as the Europeans or this, or but we win, right? It's a workman-like approach. Just go out. Do what needs to get done to put the W on the board. Well, it's, you know, it's the colonialist mentality. Lumbermen, oilmen, 
miners, farmers, yeah, right? And there's you. We are culturally descendant of uh, so many of these individuals who just went into the wilderness and eked it out. And there's a yeah. And I think that does come into the Canadian psyche. This you know, you know, grind it out. And I think that's something that is great within the Canadian ethos. You know, I've some of the hardest working people I've ever met are, you know, are Canadian. And, and that's pretty inspiring. All right. Let's dive into your book, The Responsibility Ethic, 12 Strategies Exceptional People Use to Do the Work and Make Success Happen. And where I'm going to start is... The uh, You've got a great quote right out of the gate that starts strong. Some people wish for a better future. Some merely watch the present unfold. Other people simply wonder, what happened? Those of us who are successful take responsibility. We are the ones who make success happen. Can you unpack the start of that as we dive into your book? Because that, I mean, if that's where we're driving by the time we're done, I like where this is going. Are you a an observer or do you overthink things or are you someone who grits and grinds and are you are you a participant you know and when we talk about someone who makes things happen it's i think it's at one level it's about ownership you know do you own it you know do you own the result and when i say that do you own the result to your core do you feel it does it vibrate in your bones and this is, you know, even a, uh, I don't know if it's more spiritual or psychological, but that vibrational energy of being truly committed to the outcome of a given goal. And for those who have experienced it, know it through and through. You feel it from your fingers through your body. And when you picture that end goal, it's enlightening. It's enlivening. And I always, I've done so much work in the corporate sphere, but I, I keep coming back to the athletic one because the metaphor is so visceral and it's so resonant. You know, to think about an Olympic gold medal, you know, are you there to watch it or do you truly, do you feel it? Do you dream it? Do you go to bed and just as you're falling asleep, you're picturing the effort that it's going to take to get there and you are relishing the effort that it takes to get there. You're not just picturing the end point because it's really easy to picture the end point to sit there and say, Oh, I want the, I want the fancy house on the water with the beautiful view. And yeah, you can picture that. And that's a very good thing. But how badly do you want the early mornings and the late nights? And how badly do you want the time away from your family? And how badly do you want uh, the, you know, the tiredness, the doubt. How badly do you want to endure the uncertainty and the risk that comes along for the ride? Because the more that you are, you know, you are committed to that and the more that you are attracted to that, you know, in pursuit of that shiny object that will deliver you, you know, more meaning. And I'm going to put a big asterisk there too, because, you know, an Olympic gold medal or a nice house are freaking meaningless. You know, there was a great story. I've got a great memory of this real estate guy. And he had made, you know, millions and millions of dollars, built up a, a condo real estate company here in Victoria, then ended up selling it. And we were sitting in his penthouse condo overlooking all of Victoria. And I had just won my Olympic gold medal. And he was sitting there. He's like, he had, he had some good luck and he just worked hard. He just hustled. And 
wow, he built an amazing company. He said, you know what? Now that I have this, it's, it's meaningless. Like it was very meaningful for me to get here, but now that I am here, it's meaningless. And I sat there with, you know, an Olympic gold medal on my resume and I was like, it is, it's pretty true. Well, meaningless, meaningless. Everything here is meaningless. What is the point? The answer that I found in the process is that you need to be pursuing a goal where you are honoring your values. And so, in the pursuit of that goal, you should be living your values. And in the achievement of your goals, you should be able to amplify your values and live your values more often. And that's what gives you the power for the grind. Because there is nothing more motivating or energizing than hard work worth doing. Hard work in pursuit of a worthy goal driven by your values. This is the how of it. And many people are very familiar too with the why. You know, get your why, get your purpose, understand why you're doing it, understand how you're doing it. That is the values piece. So if you understand your why and you understand your how, you will not only have more fuel for the journey, you will have more fuel for the continuation of the journey. Because guess what? I've seen just as many people fail from their success as they have failed from their failures. And what you're talking about here, now we're on responsibility ethic two, which is tying to our goals. And one of the challenges people have when they set goals incorrectly, and you went through this, and a lot of people who sign up for that marathon or an Ironman, they go through it, you cross the finish line. You'd been training your whole life. People who do that, they're training one to two years. You cross the finish line, you don't have a goal on the horizon, and you actually get depressed. And so by creating that goal that has purpose and meaning behind it and ties to your values, that's a way to overcome the gold medal depression, if you will. Well, I call it gold medal syndrome. Gold medal syndrome. Yeah. And it's a, it is a gold medal depression. And I saw it in, well, I experienced it myself and then started to understand it a little bit more. And I've gotten far more clarity on it as I've aged and I've gone through more of the throes of life. You know, it can be akin to, you know, the midlife crisis you know, of getting everything you want. I've seen it in entrepreneurs all the time. You know, this, you know, this condo sales guy who just was feeling the emptiness of achieving all of his financial goals and dreams and realizing, uh, like, isn't this was really motivating while I was on the journey. And now that I'm here, uh, or uh, I knew another guy who had built up you know, a really impressive car dealership, you know, Empire sold it out. And it was just you know, the letdown. So we need to have goals that are driving us forward, goals in a lot, but in alignment with our values. And, but if we're only focused on the why, the purpose to purpose, it's hard to continually find that purpose to purpose to purpose. Cause not always, not always will you have that, that goal or that target that really inspires you. The how is the everyday. So even when you are lacking purpose, which there, I'm sure there's a number of people listening to the podcast right now who are like, I don't know what my purpose is right now. I, I, I couldn't articulate it to you. You know, maybe the next step is to figure out your how, figure out what your values are, and then start making decisions every single day based on those values. And uh, you'll, 
you'll have less of that. Well, it, it lowers the risk in the future of having those, you know, the post achievement syndrome or, and when you're going through it, you can recognize it. You know, maybe you'll flash back to this conversation and you'll think, huh, there is, you know, something feels empty. Something feels missing. And, you know, is it, do I need to do the hard work? And it's slow thinking. You know, I coach people through this every week of, okay, do we need to figure out what your values are? Figure out what your purpose is? You know, set some goals. And, you know, it takes, you know, it takes a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then they're snapping and they're popping and they're driving. It's really a tried, tested and true technique of, uh, of getting from the doldrums back up and firing again. And so if we, if we go back, because you talked about one of the things that you talked about was ownership and do you own the outcome? And, Something that was important that you said before you dove in the book into your 12 strategies was the idea of locus of control and whether someone has an internal or an external locus of control. Can you get people up to speed on that? Because I think everything we talk about from here out is very internal locus of control, which if you want to achieve at high levels, you need. And, and so getting people to understand even that basic before we pile onto it, Adam, that'd be great. Well, the internal locus of control, and it makes me think of a of a client I'm coaching right now in the energy industry. So I'll, I'll get to that because I think it's a good story. We can either have an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. And this is a concept that was developed in the 1960s in the, you know, psychological literature where they were studying the psychologies of successful individuals and comparing them to ones who were, you know, less successful in life. And it turns out that if you have a very strong focus on the things that you can control, I can control my response to a given situation. I can tr- control my reaction. You know, maybe sometimes we have an instant reaction, we're triggered and we react, but between action and response, there is a space. And this is a Viktor Frankl quote. And in that space lies our power to choose. And, and with maturity and with awareness, we can start to recognize that space between the, the, you know, trigger, action, reaction and start to take deeper and deeper breaths between that and be able to start changing our behavior into a way that is is more effective for the situation. And so the locus of control is not new. It was, you know, I think first written about by Epictetus, uh, who is an old Stoic philosopher, you know, the teacher of, what was it, Marcus Aurelius? Are you familiar with this? Yeah, so Epictetus, well, not necessarily a direct teacher, but indirectly through writings was and seen as one of sort of the three greats, right? We have Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca are sort of the three that people refer to when they talk about the great Stoic writers, yes. Yeah, great Stoic And I would have, and for the longest time, I'll have, you know, Epictetus's uh, biography on audiobook on repeat. Just listen to it as I go to sleep. So many good teachings in that book. But the so this idea of the locus of control goes all the way back to you know, thousands of years ago, and people have known about it. And I learned about it as an Olympic athlete. My high-performance psychologist sat me down when I was going through a tough patch, and he just drew a circle on the paper. He said, Creek, there are things that you can control and the things that you can't control. And he said, look at this circle. Focus on this circle right here on the paper. 
Outside in the room, you know, off this paper, you can't control that. Outside in the room, that's off the paper. Focus on the circle in the paper. And this was at a time when I had an injury. And he said, don't stop thinking about would have, should have, could have. Oh, looking at the other people who are training and who are not, you know, what can you control? Well, I can focus on healing. I can focus on my attitude and uh, focus on my, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual state. And that was the pep talk I needed to really, you know, shake me up. But it's, you know, I, and I want to come back to this client of mine that I constantly work with. And he was uh, bemoaning the fact that I'm always, I'm really hard on him. Because he's like, every time I come, I come to a, with you with a big problem. He's dealing a problem with one of his investors right now, who's really laying the gears on him and wanted to get just, wanted to get more certainty uh, for his investment and get uh, a little bit more, yeah, get more certainty for his investment and make sure that his stake is, uh, you know, is solidified in the company. And he's coming with me complaining about the the investor and everything that's happening and. The, my constant response is, what are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And he's like, why are you always like picking at me and you're not taking my side? And I was like, well, this, you have to focus on what you can control. You can't control this other person. And so do you have the right, you know, mindset? Do you have the right state? Are you having enough internal reflection and understanding and figuring out that space, you know, between, you know, the trigger action and reaction to make it happen? And, you know, that's the path to his maturity. And that's the path to his success is to be able to understand that and, you know, and move forward. And I'll say entrepreneurship is one of the biggest gifts for personal development and self-awareness. Because it puts you through one of the biggest ringers, one of the biggest, you know, highs and lows. You know, I've been an Olympic athlete, I've been an entrepreneur. And, you know, when things are going really well, you are on top of the world. When things are tight, it's man, it hurts. And, and it teaches you what you need to do to be successful. And you've got to, again, focus in on what you can control. I can control my response to the given situation. And we get back to these you know, these ideas and these lessons of, you know, of discipline, you know, of, of focus, of saying no more. And we, and I, I can keep rhyming them off and they seem trite and they seem like aphorisms. And especially when you're young, you look at them and you shake your head and you're like, oh, why do, why do all these older guys, you know, tell me this? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and cause you're young and you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're bustling. You got a ton of energy and you, you got to go out there and make some mistakes and you got to figure out one, how to push yourself to the limit. Cause you don't know it. You're 25, you're 28. You don't know how to push yourself. Come on. Don't trick yourself. You're still a freaking baby and you don't really know what it's like to hurt. And the, you know, the gift of entrepreneurship is that it truly shows you what your limits are. And that's, that's what's so exciting and that's what's so thrilling. And I think that's why I've been attracted to it because of, you know, because of my background and my, my joy of growth and personal development and, you know, how much I relish the challenge. And so it's a, you know, and again, it comes down to the locus of control. What can you focus on? What can you control? Well, I can control my mindset. I can control the goals I, I set. I can control the skills I have. You know, let's get back to this idea of purpose, having very clear purpose. What is your purpose? 
which is why you're doing it, your values, which is how you're doing it, the decisions you make on the process. And, you know, the locus of control drives so much. Let's hit, because the the first two ethics, in some way, we can almost tie them together. And, and it's around that goal setting, because part of what you learned through the taking responsibility for failure and taking responsibility for your goal setting, I appreciated the way you identified creating goals that, if you will, have a cluster of goals underneath them as a hedge so that if we do fail, we still succeed. And, and I think you that in the book that was referred to as the clustered science of non-attainment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the clustered science. Well, so, yeah, the clustered science of non-attainment. <laughs> and I don't think that's something that, you know, a lot of people think about, right, Adam? We, we create that big audacious goal and then we don't hit it and, and we're destroyed. Like, oh, I didn't achieve it. And this is a way to look at it to say, well, wait, even in not achieving it, we're going to achieve it, but differently. Do you want to take people through that concept? Well, every time you set a big, hairy, audacious goal, I'm going through this process with one of my clients tonight, even, is that you're going to achieve a lot of other smaller goals on the process. If you're setting a big, hairy, audacious goal properly, it's 10 years out you you know, it's the peak of the mountain. And I've climbed a few mountains in my life where I've come to the bottom and you look at it and you're like, I have no idea how we're going to get up, you know, and this and then after a couple of days and a few mistakes and reroutes, then you get to the top, right? But that's, you know, now think about that over 10 years, you know, looking at a mountain that you're thinking, I have no idea how to get up. But when you're climbing that metaphorical mountain, you're building skills, you know, let's talk about the, what kind of skills are you building when you're building, when you're climbing a mountain? Well, you're learning better orientation skills. You know, you're learning how to read uh, geology. You, you're, fi- you're figuring out how to read the cracks in the rocks. You know, find uh, these, uh, these chimneys or these crevasses that could lean to something. You, you start to become more aware of danger and safety. You also learn, you know, leadership skills. You know, if you're climbing a mountain, you should not be climbing alone. You know, that's, you're climbing with other people who are supporting you and are aware of what you're doing. So you're learning teamwork, you're learning leadership, you're learning focus, you're learning strategy, energy management. And there's a lot of different skills that you are learning along the way. And so if you focus and like a mountain, I've also done a bunch of attempted summits where you get to a point and you have a given time frame. You know, I've got three days to do this. I've got five days to do this. And you get to a point and the weather rolls in and you start to hear the wind above and the rocks start to fall. And you think, I'm not going to climb to the top of this mountain. The rocks are falling. Um, you know, I could keep pushing you know, and I could push to my death. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny, but <laughs> maybe death is funny. <sighs> <laughs> I'm just reflecting on some of these situations. And maybe I'm just, I'm laughing at the, yeah, at this drive we have. Sometimes we have this drive to do just stupid things for the sake of our ego. That's probably what's so funny. Because it's a goal, right? You, you can't let it go. I came here to go. I came, like, what does it matter that you climb to the top of this mountain? It doesn't. 
right? It, uh, but it does. It's, it's this, this funny con, it doesn't, but it does, uh, this funny contrast. So you get to that point where you realize I'm not going to climb to the top of the mountain. I've got to turn around. I've got to go down. But guess what? I've learned new roping skills. I've learned new safety awareness skills. I've learned better communication. I've been able to connect with nature. I've been able to connect with God. I've been able to rebuild my soul uh, by spending time out here in, you know, in nature, in the wild. And, you know, the same sort of thing comes, you know, every big, hairy, audacious goal has a cluster of benefits that sits underneath it. So when you start thinking about the goal you set and uh, the, you know, everything that you achieve along the way, you know, even, you know, like writing a book, like writing a book, and I ended up pushing out this book and writing this book, and there's probably people out there who themselves are thinking about writing a book. You know, what I learned about writing a book, you know, beyond whether it's a success or failure, you know, I, I wrote something, you know, I was, I, was about, I was motivated to leave a legacy for my children. You know, I was, you know, motivated to sell books. I was motivated to learn about the publishing process. I now know how to publish a book. I know the business model of publishing a book, which is something I didn't know beforehand. I'm a much better writer. So I've had a lot of write. I'm a trained engineer. I'm not a writer. And so it was, it took some effort for me to actually hash things out, but I also have high personal standards. So I wasn't satisfied with the first draft or the second draft or the third draft or the eighth draft. You know, it was, it took a while to, to work it through. And, you know, and then I was able to connect with people as connect with amazing other authors and connect with other writers and be able to, yeah, clarify my thoughts. And, and so there are all these other, other goals that whether or not you could call the book a success or, or not a success. And it's been, it's been a bestseller, which means it sold 5,000 copies, which is, you know, that's pretty cool. It's, uh, from a business model, the reason why you want to have a best-selling book is that uh, 5,000 copies generally pays for the production and distribution of your book. That's why a 5,000, 5,000 books matters. You know, from a, if you want to produce the book, you know, hire people and, uh, and push it out there, you know, 5,000 book sales will pay for the book and give you, you know, a little bit of profit on the other end. So there's, when you're thinking about the goals that you have in your career and your life, especially that big, hairy, audacious goal that you might have, you know, career-wise, life-wise, business-wise, you you have to start thinking about the other wins that will occur along the way, and that's the yeah, that's the that's truly what what matters. Yeah, I, I think the and like we said at the end of the day. The goal motivates the journey. You know, I think I talk about this too, right? It's about, you know, people say it's all about the journey and no, it's not all about the journey. You know, it's about the goal and the journey. That's right. And that's a slight subtle difference between what a lot of people say is you're saying, Hey, it's not just the destination. It's not just the journey. It's the destination and the journey. And why is, why that subtle difference, Adam? Because we do want to get the goal, right? We do. Like, it's a couch. You know, when you say it's all about the journey, there people are talking about the gold medal syndrome. They're talking about this, this feeling of emptiness at the other side of achievement. You know, 
yet I don't think they have a deeper understanding of philosophy and they're couching, they're using this idea to, you know, to help themselves and to exercise self-compassion, which, which are all amazing things, which we all need in our life because life is hard. When you're setting the goal, then you want to make sure that you've got this cluster of benefits that even if you don't get all the way, although we're setting the goal to get there, but if we don't get there, we're still going to get benefits. And what I found beneficial for people when they're setting goals, you had some research by Edwin Locke in the book that talked about the power of setting hard goals. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and why? And I, I, I can fire the three benefits out and then we can talk about it. Oh my gosh, new developments in goal setting? That is... So for for our listeners, Adam just pulled off the bookshelf a literal, it looks like about 550 page textbook on the science of goal setting. Yeah, there has been a lot of research on goal setting. And it's, you know, it can be boiled down into some very simple concept, which is that when you set high, hard goals, you achieve more than when you set achievable high goals. And the rule of thumb, and you see this in, you know, I was, I was running a, a team through an execution framework and goal setting session. So we had them out for a day and they, their team had grown from four to 14 uh, people. They had a massive budget and uh, they were trying to figure out how do we track our goals and keep each other accountable. And so we, were, we set these things called, you know, OKRs, objectives, key results. Uh, so making sure, uh, and we were using a framework called the 4DX framework, uh, the, you know, four disciplines of execution. You know, make sure you have a wildly important goal, which is slightly different from a BHAG, which is pretty much the same thing. Uh, right? <laughs> right? Have a big, like have an Edwin Locke sized goal, like huge, right? Have a huge goal. And then, uh, two, measure the progress, right? Measure the progress. Don't measure the endpoint. So measure lead measures. So as like you're not measuring the final time of the race, you're measuring the split times, you're measuring the cadence, you're measuring the heart rate, and those become indicators of your performance along the way. And that becomes part of a, and then you put it into a scoreboard. And so you're you're measuring the progress, and you put it into a scoreboard, which is a spreadsheet or just a even piece of paper on the wall. But we've, we do it electronically now, especially because of so many remote teams. And then you have a regular meet, a cadence of meeting where you're referring to those, you know, those goals and they're, they're lead measure goals. They're activating goals. They're like, how hard am I training right now? How am I acting right now? And they're tied to that big goal. You know, that big goal, which is, this is, you know, market leads, revenues, assets under management, you know, meters of pipe laid, meters of oil or liters of oil, you know, taken out of the ground or, or whatever that big metric you have for your organization, for your company. And the, you know, the goals that you set in this process, coming back to Edwin Locke, need to be, you know, not just the big goal, but also those, those lead metrics. You need to be aim like they need to be so hard that you're hitting a seventy percent. So you're a solid B minus C, right? And that's hard, for, especially for a lot of the high performers I work with, who in you know in school they you know they're A type players, and they're they're thinking, oh, I have to I have to set a goal for a, a C. I have to set a I have to set something so hard for me that 
at my hardest for work, I work, I'm going to hit a C. And the reason why you do that is that our imagination is terrified. We, something in our subconscious is scared. And I saw this as an Olympic athlete when we were, or my Olympic coach, he would say that you could only truly race three times a year. You could only race, like there were races all over the, you know, you'd be racing all the time, but you could truly only peak for a race three times a year. And why was that? Because when you go and you actually push it all out and you really give it, uh, the, you get scared because you find your, you really find your limit and it terrifies you. So the, like, we're, we're scared of the limit, but you have to set something that is a little bit scary. If you want to maximize your achievement and you have to be okay with not quite achieving that. And what they found time and time again, coming back to Edwin Locke, and this has been reinforced. Google is very big on this. The, you know, setting, setting goals where it's stretch and you think you can hit, you know, if everything lines up, right? The other thing is that there's so much unpredictability and unpredictability in the world. So if you set the goal where you think if, if you give your best and, uh, and everything works out, you know, a 70% is the most likely outcome. Uh, it helps stretch your mind and stretch your thinking. And so high, hard goals are, are always better. Is that the same concept as, so if you are working with a company and they say, hey, we want to grow our revenue incrementally, like we're going to go from 250 million to 300 million versus the concept of we're going to 10x it. We're going from 250 to two and a half billion. And part of the reason you do that is you can incrementally grow just by doing a bit more of what you're already doing. But anytime you try to think of, well, how do I get from here to 10 times here? You have to change everything. Like it's a complete mindset shift. And so you're forcing yourself to think differently? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's 100%. You know, I had a client, uh, this is a number of years ago, and he was having you know, he's having so much trouble. He's had like a $10 million company and uh, he's like, okay, 10 million bucks in revenue. And it's like, ah, oh, I'm just having all these problems. And it's like, okay, your task is to go write out, write out the business plan. Like, what does your company look like when you're a $50 million company? What does it look like when you're a $50 million company? So writes it down and He's like, why are you getting me to do this? And he's like, well, it's just, let's just imagine it. Imagine the, like, what, what your company looks like, the people who are working for it, the, like, the resources you have, because when you have that much more revenue, you have that much more resources, you can solve bigger problems. You've, you know, kind of a bigger impact. And so he writes it out. And then a couple of years later, it's a, I think it was like a 35, $40 million company. And he was just trying to boost it from a ten to a twelve million dollar company to to solve his problem. Now he has new problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like you're like it's you're just you're picking problems. Like you're 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 always picking problems. You're every problem you solve is going to lead to a, a new one, and that's just the nature of of business and growth and life. But uh, that you 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 hit on it one hundred percent with the ten x piece. You know you have to. And what I see, you have to have a big enough business to have that, you know, the role really carved out for a leader. Because it takes a lot of creative energy and emotional energy and spiritual energy to blast and advocate for. Let's talk leadership. 
right? It, you have to bring the energy if you're going to 10x something. <laughs> it is like you have to show up <laughs> and be so confident and bring, cause everyone is going to resist this. You're going to show up. And you're going to say, we are going to 10x our company. We are going to move from you know, 500,000 revenue to 5 million. We're going to move from 5 million to 50 million. And people are going to be like, oh, like, <laughs> that's a lot of work. How are we going to do that? And you got to paint the picture and you got to hammer on it over and over again. And you've got to strengthen yourself in the quiet times and, uh, and just continue to like hold the torch and burn the flame. You know, obviously you need to have a, like a decent strategy that you're pushing for. It can't just be a, an actual plan. Yeah. An act, well, a, most of a kind of like a BHAG plan kind of thing, right? The, so let's talk about the leadership piece. The, so traditionally command and control, right? And you write that that's dead and buried and that leadership is now the ability to turn a vision into reality by enlisting the help and winning the hearts of others. So what does that look like? Like, how do we create that culture of leadership and create that culture that you talk about of shared leadership? Well, the foundation of shared leadership is communication, trust, shared experience. You know, if, if you want to win as a team, you have to buy in and you need to have individuals who know how to buy in. And the, like the magic of shared leadership is that as a leader, remember how I, I talked about if you're the 10x leader, you've got to bring it, you've got to bring the energy. But guess what? You are a human. I am a human. And, you know, I've been to the extremes of some of the, you know, the places of humanity and, you know, in sport, athletics, the wilderness. I've seen, you know, met a lot of these, you know, big CEOs, you know, presidents, prime ministers, you know, big, you know, musicians. Like seeing people who are at the edge and they at the core are human and they fail and their energy fails, their ideas fail, their, you know, their, their spirit fails. And when you have a team of people who are interdependent, who know how to support one another, who are very skilled, you know, and let's talk about the three C's. I don't write about this in the book. But these are three C's that we work about, work for, for people you'd want to share leadership with. You know, one, you'd want to have character. Two, you want to have chemistry. Three, you want to have competence. Character, chemistry, competence. So if you have an individual with very strong character, and that's the foundation of trust, right? It's the foundation of trust. I know who you are going to be. You know, values is highly you know, highly or character is highly influenced by your values. You know, they're they're very close cousins. You know, values are 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 your natural drivers. Character is your ideal self that you show up with. You know, that's the you know the, call it the mask you wear, the performance you bring to the workplace. So you have very strong character. You know, that's in alignment with your values. Very strong alignment with your values. Chemistry. How do you work together? Do you fire each other up? You know, is communication quick? Is it natural? Is it understood? And is it really easy to get points across? And does, does it just work? And this is, we're talking about behaviors. We're talking about 
culture. And then we're talking about competence. You want highly skilled individuals, people who truly know what they are doing. And those three things, if you have a small team, you know, shared leadership, you know, as a concept, you know, a team of two, a team of four, a team of eight, you know, th- you know, these smaller teams where you're sharing leadership, truly, you know, I think back to the Margaret Mead uh, quote about a small group of people getting together to change the world. You know, indeed, that's the only thing that has. When we're talking about that small group of people who make an impact, that's shared leadership. And so when we talk about sharing leadership, it, it's sharing influence. And so I want to get to the root of leadership because it's hard for some people to to define leadership. Leadership is about influence and it's about vision. So one, and I find the first, it's, it's really difficult one to have the first, which is the vision. So you have to clearly visualize and see what that future is. And then two, it's about influencing others to take action to pursue that vision. So when you have shared leadership, you have two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, you know, in a like, you know, imagine having a hundred people who all share the exact same vision, that vision, that outcome. And then there's the tools of influence, right? The tools of influence, which uh, that we pass back and forth to say, to achieve this goal, we need to do this, or to achieve this goal, we need to do that. And, you know, for that's truly, you know, I think that's the power of shared leadership. And it's it's something I've, I'm going to bring in a rowing metaphor because it's so... It's so apt. You've got all, all the rows have to be moving together. It's the perfect metaphor for it. Well, it is. You know, I was having this conversation with my own coach yesterday, and he was you know, talking about a few of these. He's like, I'd never met a rower ever before. And now, like, I'm working with you and I keep meeting these rowers everywhere. Like, what is that? And they're all super successful as well. Like if I were to look at my teammates, I'm the most public of them do in a public role, but all of them in their own rights are, they're crushing it. They're crushing it in life and business. And like, why is that? And there, there was a study that came out showing that rowers were one of the most successful in life and business after sport. And why is that? And I'd be like, I don't know. Is it? And my first thought was, well, you know, maybe there's some advantage that comes. You know, I'm not from a private school background, but a lot of my friends and a lot of those guys are. So very, very well educated, great parents who knew how to raise their children, put them into great schools, had a strong focus on education, on discipline, well supported. So had an environment that was very nurturing. So, okay, that's one piece, but not everybody is. And guess what? There's lots of other people who went to private schools and played sports, you know, there's lacrosse and baseball and this and that, and da, 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 you know, judo and, you know, fencing or whatever. So what is it about rowing? You know, that's, you know, that's ahead of everyone else. One is the ability to suffer because rowing in and of itself is, you know, if you can suffer and if you can suffer more, if I know how to suffer more than the man in the lane beside me, I have a better chance of being ahead. And so the goal is to learn how to suffer in training and suffer in racing. But getting back to this idea of shared leadership and trust, can you suffer together? Can you support one another in your suffering? You know, this is a great, shared leadership is very close to teamwork. And so I think of this, you know, when you're in the middle of a rowing boat and you're moving along your legs, you're on a sliding seat, so your legs are moving, you know, eight, 
sets of legs moving together, the eight backs moving together, eight oars moving together. Everyone's moving together and in sync. And if you've ever gone for a run or a swim or a bike, you've had this training piece and you get to the point where you have so much lactic acid and physical pain that you want to stop and you're like, you're empty. You're cut. And then you either go or you stop. If you're in the middle of a piece of a, you know, of a training piece and you, you hit that wall, like you push yourself absolutely to that wall and there's still an extra 30 seconds left in that piece. The others, chances are the other seven haven't reached that wall yet because, you know, as humans, we hit those walls at different points in time. And so those other seven keep going and you get pulled through. You get pulled through this deep cave and this deep, this deep pit to the other side and you find more power and more endurance and more magic on the other side of suffering than you had ever known possible. And not only do you experience that as a gift from the other seven, you give that gift. You give that gift when your teammate is suffering and you're not even aware of it. Half the time, more than half the time, we are suffering alone in silence. And we give that gift through, you know, the, the strength that we, you know, that we project and that we have in the moment. And then we receive that. We, we receive that strength from, you know, from our teammates, from our co-leaders. And that is, you know, there is a lot of power in that relationship. And how do you teach that to someone who hasn't been to the dark spots, who hasn't pushed through the edges? They haven't been, you know, and it might not be rowing, right? It might be they've, they've done an ultra, they've done an Ironman and they've, they've been to the darkness and had to keep going. How do you teach that to someone who's never tasted failure yet pushed through? The reason why you do this, why, why we push our young people, you know, athletics is a young person's game, especially high performance athletics. And then as we age, it becomes a spiritual pursuit. You know, to be a master's athlete is to be, you know, a monk or is to be, you know, someone who's, who's pursuing something else other than, you know, it's best self-performance. It's not, you know, there is, so how do you, the reason why we do that is we, we put our kids into these situations and it's not just athletics that does this. I've seen it in the art, you know, push a kid on stage to, perform with their violin. Holy crap. Look at the fear they have to push through and they get to the other side. What, what a, what a gift you see it in, but you see it in entrepreneurship and leadership because you get to that edge. You get to that edge in your forties and your fifties. And I see it all the time. I see it all the time, you know, in these men and these women, they get to their forties and their fifties and you're pushing at your limit and you are in the pit and you can't go any harder. You've got kids, you've got responsibilities, your, you know, as you age, your energy system declines. You don't have the same resiliency, yet your responsibilities are going up through the roof. And the reason why we have athletics for our children, arts for our children, you know, outdoor leadership experiences for our children is that that is one way to teach it. And experiential learning is the best learning. And if someone hasn't experienced it, I think it's, they're either going to experience it in business and life when they get to that point. And then it's our job as leaders and coaches to support them. 
make sure that they have the right they have the right resources available for them because again pushing through that pit you know not once did i say i did it on my own exactly yeah i was so alone and i found the magic without anyone else there yeah you know, I've pushed through and I've found the magic without anyone else there. And I will tell you, there's 10 times, 100 times more magic that you find when you push through and you have a supportive environment and it's you get through the pit faster. And so it is the million dollar question because it's the frustration of, you know, older leaders, older managers who've had the life experience. You've had to push through. You've had to find coping techniques. You have hit the wall. You have broken to pieces and you've had to put them back together. And that's, you know, that's part of aging and life and maturity. And you can't do that for someone else. You know, they have to, everyone has their own journey they have to go through. And, you know, as a leader, I think you want to make sure that the support structure is there, that you're pushing them to, you know, to find their limit. You're doing simple things like setting goals, you know, setting them up for success. You know, giving them regular feedback, performance reviews, letting them know what's possible, setting up a system, setting up an environment. This is actually, this is a really good one. You know, try to think about as the leader, are you setting up an environment where it's not just you, the leader, it's other team members that you can point to as those who are pushing. So every, you know, every great team has, you know, call it the stud you know, and that you point to and you say, or the studette, right? The performer. And you say, look at that performer. And look, and this comes back to values. This comes to you know, values inform behaviors, which inform culture. And what we're talking about is building a culture that helps drive individuals to be better and to find that, find their own limit. So you point to, you know, the star performer and you acknowledge them and you, you lift them up and people look and they say, why are they why are they getting the rewards of acknowledgement? You know, it's because they're giving the effort towards the common goal and they are performing and they're delivering the results and they're fulfilling the behaviors and the, and living the values and, and helping us achieve our purpose. And so two things that you highlighted in there that I'd love to digress onto with you were you're pushing at your limits and you're driving so one of the things that brings up is stress and we've got good stress we've got bad stress uh, you put the curve in the book that I love I draw that for people all the time when they tell me I'm stressed and I'm like well stress is good bring out the Yerkes Dodson and then, and then the second half is how we recover from it all and what we're doing from a recovery standpoint and you have some good things there so do you want to tackle like the benefits of stress, because often people don't think there are benefits. But I think you and I both believe, no, you need good stress in life. And then two, how we recover from this all and, and what are we doing so that even amidst the stress, we're still optimal performers. Well, there's a stress is very good. And then there's there's a funny experience I see in a small segment of the population and high perform, especially high performers. Because high performers learn to love stress and learn to lean into stress. And you learn to love it more and more and more. And you find so many results from all the stress that you've been able to endure and the uncertainty that you've been able to, uh, to live through. And then you freaking break, right? You can push like 
You can push harder than you have imagined until you can't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you saw me laughing and it's so true, right? It's you push hard as hard as you can until you hit the wall and then you collapse and then you and then you bounce back, but as you age, you bounce back slower or you don't. Or you don't. Yeah. And the other thing with age is that you also learn how to push harder and the memories you remember the hard points and then you, you remember how to sit in the hard points longer. So this is another thing I've noticed is that there's, as we age, these ideas of, of self compassion and temperance become so much more useful because of, you know, one, either our lack of ability to recover or two, you know, our mental strength and our ability, you know, to push that much harder. So we actually push ourselves into deeper pits, but the, you know, the idea of stress is, you know, the simple one I like to think of as the bench press because I love the bench press, right? It's it's about the push up and the push down. And the more stress you put on, right, I could do two really hard bench press pushes or I could do, you know, 10 sets of 20, you know, burning everything up, right? And I'm going to build the muscles. Yeah! But the muscles aren't built in the pressing and you know, aren't, they're built in the time between the presses. And it's extreme lifting weights because you, you know, you might push for five minutes in total if you're really giving it. And then you spend 72 hours recovering. And what happens? You come back just a little bit stronger and just a fraction. And so that's, you know, the stress is good, right? There is an element of stress being good. But then, you know, like that power curve, you, know, you get to a point where stress isn't good, right? Where stress becomes destructive, it becomes toxic. And the goal is to, you know, spend as much time as possible on the peak of that curve, you know, which, you know, let's talk about the two axes, right? Which is performance on the bottom, what's our performance like? And on the side, which is level of stress. You know, so, or, oh no, performance is on the side and level of stress is on the bottom. So as your stress increases, performance increases. If I go to the gym alone, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go lift, do some bench press. I'm doing it alone. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to lift only so much weight. But if I have a buddy, you know, Clint Murphy's at my door, bam, bam, bam. Come on, Creek. We're going to go to the gym. We're going to lift some weight. I say, okay. You know, that's kind of stressful. Clint at my door, but here we go. Let's do the bench. I'm going to lift more weights when Clint is there. But then, you know, Clint shows up with his, with his crew and they got a bunch of baseball bats and whips and they're spitting at me and they're whipping me and they're telling me I got to lift weights and I'm terrified. You know, I'm going to get to a point where I can't, I'm, I'm going to certainly underperform because I can't, I can't do that. So it's, it's finding the right level of, of stress that's being put on the situation to optimize performance. And so the goal is to get to that point where you recognize what's the optimal level of stress for me, you know, for this situation, for this moment. And then two, recognize that point of recovery because recovery is incredibly powerful and recovery is needed. And recovery, and I'll say this for high performers, is also one of the most difficult pieces of the puzzle because and that it's one of the biggest secrets that you don't hear about in hustle culture and i think it's 
it's a bit of a tipping point because when you're a kid, you don't know how to work hard. You don't understand what hard work is. You re- you truly don't. You don't understand what focus is. And uh, you know, as you grow, you start to truly, truly understand what it means. And the you know, and it's important. You have to learn how to push yourself. The first like. You know, as you're moving up and as you're moving at maturity, you have to figure out how to push yourself to your limits and find your limits. And then as you've found your limits and you've broken through your limits and you've found failures and you've had, you know, the breakdowns and you've had the rebuilds, it's important to to recognize the, you know, the signs and make sure that you have the proper recovery mechanisms built in. And there's ways, you know, and that was the secret for performance as an Olympic athlete more than anything. Let's go back to this idea of the locus of control. You know, as an individual athlete, I could not control what training plan was given to me by my coach. You know, there was, you know, he would say, this is what we need to do. And so, I'd go and I'd follow it and I'd do it as best as I can. But what I could design on my own was my own recovery plan. And when I was, you know, at times I would try to push harder on my own time. I'd do extra workouts, do extra weights. And I hit overtraining a couple times where I just pushed too hard, right? You know, you hear the stories of like Kobe Bryant getting up in the morning and sweating and showing up before doing the work before everyone else does. But, you know, basketball players, you know, they don't know how to work hard. They're, yeah, I say that with (laughs) big tongue in cheek. It's kind of fun. But at the same time, it's a skill-based sport versus a power-based sport, right? They Basketball players would be incredible roars, uh, but I don't know if they'd have, you know, the grip to get through it, most of them. Kobe Bryant probably would have. You know, he's a guy who liked to sweat and work. And so he'd do the sweat and the work. And then later in the day when they're doing all the technical and the you know strategic pieces, you have the base of fitness. But the you know but what you'd have control of as as an athlete was how you recover. So can you recover more effect? Can I sleep better? So you're constantly looking for the small and at that, you know, when you're at the the training level for the Olympics, you're you're looking for the marginal gains everywhere. Can I sleep a little bit better? Can I eat a little bit better? Can I recover a little bit better? Am I you know trying to f- and every person is a little bit different, you know, in how they're they're structured and the you know sometimes recovery is doing very little, but sometimes recovery is simply doing lots of something very different. You know, and for me, often it was, you know, just going out and, you know, like I ended up getting my gun license and I'd go out into the woods and like fire my guns off at bottles or I'd learn how to play, I learned how to play the mandolin and, you know, learned, you know, learned another skill. I went in and I spoke at schools and, you know, was learning how to public speak and put a few words together in front of people. And having other skills that I was developing that were very different. And it's kind of opposite to how we live now as, you know, as business owners and as, you know, uh, you know, as people who work in the professional field, we almost, we need physical pursuits because we're working so hard intellectually and mentally. Yeah. You, you need to get out of your head and just get into your body. Where it was balance it and it was opposite, you know, as an athlete, you're, mind you, there's a lot of intellectual challenge, you know, to athletics as well. But it's certainly, you know, the work hard, play hard thing is, I think it's a good model, to be honest, you know, as long as you're not throwing too many drugs and alcohol in the play hard (laughs) side of things, because that will kill you. 
The so what are some of the things you share with your clients on the recovery side of things to have them operating at their best as leaders? Whether it's eating, exercise, sleep, what are you really throwing at them to focus on? Well, it comes you know, there's the basics, right? The you know, eat less sugar, eat less refined carbs, drink less alcohol move your body more if there's you know you cannot be a high performer if you're if you're a sedentary person and by a sedentary person that means you're moving less than 150 minutes per week and you're not you know pushing something heavy uh twice a week whether that's your own body or weight so you want to do some strength and mobility or strength and or mobility training twice a week uh and some you know low level cardio you know, for 150 minutes a week, so three, four times a week. And if you're doing that, that's the base level of physicality <laughs> that I've seen. And I've, I've even noticed, I've observed in myself, there, I've gone down to being a sedentary person and I've noticed a serious lack in, in productivity, you know, especially being a very physical person myself. Having gone through the stages up to where we were training, you know, five, six hours a day, you know, in, in high intensity training, but that's, not that's not realistic or even recommended if you have very strong business goals. So the first goal is to just to be an active person. Don't be a sedentary person. You know, diet. You know, understand what sort of supplements work for you. And I'm not an expert, uh, so I don't I don't recommend supplements or vitamins. I have lots that I take for myself that work for me, but it's not something that I necessarily you know. Put out there, you know, I'll have discussions with my clients and share what I use, but it's works for me. And, you know, there's, you know, a lot of the basic, you know, there's a lot of research behind, you know, creatine as a performance enhancer, you know, branched chain amino acids, make sure you have your omegas, you know, cover your bases with uh, a multi, have some greens. And then there's a bunch of other stuff, you know, around the edges. There's so it's making sure you have a good supplemental regime, making sure that your nutrient level is high and that you're optimizing your, you know, your supplementation and uh, the, yeah, and it's a whole foods diet move towards it. And it's more meat and vegetables is truly where, where I go for, for better nutrition. As I've aged, I've noticed I've need to eat less food. Like when I was young, I needed more food. And so now everybody has all these different diets and, you know, ways, you know, to live. But what I've found to be the most effective is just not eating. So like, don't eat, you know, and there's great process of, of autophagy that occurs when you, after about 36 hours of not eating where your, your cells rebuild themselves. So do you fast regularly? How long do you usually fast for? I'll do a 36 hour fast once a week and then I'll, you know. I skip meals a few times a week, so skip breakfast, skip dinner. And so, what'll that look like for you? Like you'll eat dinner Sunday night and then not eat again till lunch on Tuesday. Yeah, uh, Mondays. Mondays my fast day. Yeah, it's usually what usually the target day I've set. And then there's I have flexibility around it too because it depends on load, like it depends on stress load, and it depends on physical load. It depends how you know what I'm training and doing. So sometimes I will. I'll move towards protein sparing instead of fasting. So just protein, no carbs, no fat. And and I'll use that to, you know, on my Monday day. 
then at the same time, it's just, you know, it's watching. It's, it's acknowledging that I don't need to eat. And sometimes people say, oh, let's go out and let's eat this or let's do this. Or, and it's like, well, I could not eat for a week and be okay. And that's the gift of fasting. Because when we're young and our body starts to get used to it, you, you start to become dependent upon food and we use it for, you know, emotional regulation. And you find other, when you're fasting, you have to find other ways to work through, you know, some of the mental challenge uh, that you have. So that's the, you know, that's what I found about with, with fasting. So, and it's the best, you know, from a diet standpoint, I think it's like, you don't have to think about it other than just not eat whole foods and eat less of them. If you want to be basic, right? Like it, the, I still remember I worked for a company and they were talking about, they had this video called the fat smoker. And he said, everybody always makes it so difficult, but it really comes down to eat less, exercise more. It's like, oh, well, it really is that simple. Well, it is. And I'd, I'd argue that it's like eat less, eat more whole foods, exercise more. Because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of information out there financed by, you know, business diet companies, business interest, you know, people don't feel good and they know that if they eat properly, they feel better. And so they're looking for that quick fix of that answer. But guess what? Sugar's addictive, bread's addictive, carbohydrates are addictive, and they're wonderful when your body needs them for fuel and they, um, but you know, I think the reason why like the, you know, keto and low carb has become more and more popular is that you know, people have become less and less active, right? We're sitting in front of freaking computers. So you need different, you know, if I'm out there all day, like hammering, uh, on a nail or carrying bags of grain off of the boat onto the shore. Yeah. I need a ton of, I need a ton of carbs for that. If I'm sitting in front of a computer for eight hours, you know, I can use different energy pathways and feel better. And so I think there's, you know, there's an element of, you know, the nature of our work and how, you know, diet has changed as well. Absolutely. So a, a curveball for you. So you're done sport. Now I'm just living life. Why coach still? Why mentor? What's, why does someone sign up for that? Why do you recommend that? Well, it helps me live my values. Essentially, you know, I'm, I'm motivated by delivering a generous impact. You know, I'm motivated by growth in flow. You know, I need to make sure that I'm creating loving connections with people. I was, I was frustrated afterwards. I joined a couple of large organizations after sport, but I found that there was, I wasn't able to push to the level that I wanted to as you know as part of an or large organization and more than that i didn't push to the level i wanted to as a team because remember how i said it's you you become so and i didn't recognize this at the time but you become so it's such a gift it's such a gift when you're part of a strong driving team who is all completely aligned and hammering towards the same goal and when you get to a large organization, it's rare to find that unless you get in the right department or you've, you've, and I wasn't able to find that in the corporate world. And I kept, and so the solutions I had was if I can't find it, I need to build it. You know, let focus on what you can control. I need to build something where I, you know, I'm able to, you know, you know, push to the level I want to push and, you know, and feel that support. And that moved into the coaching sphere. 
And the coaching world came, it, it didn't start with coaching. It started with, with public speaking. Afterwards, you win an Olympic gold medal and people are excited to hear your story. And so they want to, you, you come out and you're kind of like a cardboard cutout. They don't even really. Like a Wheaties box? Exactly. You're like a Wheaties box. And it doesn't even matter what you do. You stand up on stage and you're like, hi, I worked really hard and I failed. And then I kept working hard and then I won. It's like, whoa. Yeah, and then they're giving you checks for you know, five, ten thousand dollars. You're like, what? That's okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll keep doing this. And but again, it's fun the first couple times you do it, and then you need to find that bigger purpose and understand which values are driving you for the longer term. And so, like I said, you know, loving connection, generous impact, uh, growth and flow, ambitious achievement. You know, those things drove me. They, they drove me to understand the practice, to understand how to build something and build a, you know, build a business where, you know, where we moved. We, it was, you know, in the top 5% of all, you know, public speakers in North America, which is amazing. You know, we were crushing it, you know, and, uh, that was fun. But then what happened was I just started to nerd out on all of this, these organizational dynamics. I'd be sitting in on AGMs and I'd be sitting with the CEOs or the C-suite of, of these large organizations as we're, we're in this conference rooms and are going through their strategic planning sessions and they're talking about their goals and their targets. And I'm talking with them beforehand, trying to tie my story and to make it, you know, how does it relate to the people in the room and the challenges that they're going through? And then eventually I got a phone call to, you know, to run a strategic retreat for a company, you know, a strategic planning retreat and, you know, beyond just, you know, delivering a keynote. And so I ran a two and a half day retreat and they absolutely loved it. You know, I just helped them, you know, rejig their values, set their goals, get everybody in alignment. And after that, the CEO is like, I want you, you know, be my coach. And that happened about uh, five, yeah, five, six years ago. And the, and that's what pushed me into the, the coaching consulting space. It was more, I was sucked into it. And so then, then I did that for a while and if, kept on getting a few more people asking me to do it. And so I've, and again, it's just, I got the training and the education and the coaching to deliver the results. Cause that's, you know, always how I've done it. And I continue to deliver great results for my clients. And so that's, that's the foundation, I suppose. You know, you deliver great results and you just continue to, you know, people want to continue to work with you because you're helping them get what they want. And then for the C-suite executive or someone who wants to be a C-suite executive, what are they, why would you recommend they sign up with a coach or mentor? And what does that do for them in their career, in their life, in, in all aspects? Well, a a coach is there as your guide for learning and development and growth. You speed up your growth with a coach, especially if you have the right one. It becomes a safe space. If you are in a larger organization, you don't always have the luxury of being able to have free conversations with everyone around you. You know, you need, you know, you are putting on the, the mask or the armor. You know, you're putting on your character for work and you need to make sure your character is aligned with your values, but it needs to, it, it's slightly different because you have to show up as a slightly different person than you are to succeed in a group. 
and there is a you know because there's a mountain flat and you need to have a safe space to support you and there's people who can you know who will do it on their own but the you know if you're looking to grow faster if you're looking to you know have that support have fewer low points higher more high points i'm fascinated by the like everybody i work with they like from the time i start working with them to the time i'm done they're earning way more money <laughs> Right. And they have more ownership in their companies and they are, they have more influence. And we don't do a whole lot of work together. You know, it's, you know, sometimes if there's a sticking point, we, we dig in and we do a ton of work for a few weeks, but then it just becomes a, a simple check in, a check in on uh, the important, unurgent things. And so I'll, I'll leave with this final point of what a coach does. And you know that Eisenhower principle. There are things that are important. Yeah. Yeah. The Eisenhower matrix. Yeah. Right. The, you know, there are things that are important and urgent and, you know, they can be important and urgent, uh, important and unurgent, you know, unimportant and urgent, <laughs> unimportant and unurgent. And the, the goal is to spend time in the unurgent, important things. That's, that accelerates your growth. And the coach is a holding point for the, you know, important, unurgent things. And a coach will help bring some urgency to the most important things and help you develop your values, your character, your purpose. But beyond that, help you strategize on how to manage people, manage your career, access resources. Yeah, and there's the work. There's two. Th well, now it, you can't stop me. There's two things that you do as a coach, right? You put you you take the foot off the brakes and you put the foot on the gas. When we're you know sometimes when people approach me, they've got too much brakes in their life, and so we've got to work to put pull the foot off the brakes. And so I'm you know I'm pushing them to get mental health counselors or to. I don't know, you know, change up diet or lifestyle pieces or, or you know, it's personal life stuff. And some of these breaks are limiting beliefs, incorrect mindsets. And so it's getting rid of those breaks. Getting rid of those breaks. But, but I'd say most, for the most part, like most of the people I work with have, like, they've addressed a lot of these. And so it's, they just, they often need a reminder of what, you know, maybe just a slightly tweak. And then it's, you know, holding, giving support and accountability to put the foot on the gas. And again, it's being that, you know, you need to have other people in your boat who are driving, who have your back 100% so that when you go into that inevitable pit, they are there to lift you up and drag you through. And that's what a coach is. Take you through the dark stuff to get to the bright side. Create higher highs, lower lows, more consistent performance. 100%. The last one I want to chat with you on is communication. Because you, you talk a fair bit about communication. And one of the... You had five insights that you talk about for having open communication. Making it safe, new approaches, reward honest open dialogue criticize constructively, not destructively, and organized by projects. I wanted to chat through that with you. And then and then there was one more important idea on communication, but we can get to that one next. Do you want to talk about the importance of communication as an athlete, as a business leader, and some of the strategies you 
look to for that? Communication is so important. When I see cultures that fall apart, there are two things that drive their breaking points. Communication and trust. Communication takes so much work. It takes so much time. And we are always so busy. And I think that's part of the challenge. You know, and you know, you have two types of people in an organization. You'll have managers and doers. And doers are, you know, they're experts at what they do and they just want to get the job done. And they're they want to constantly do their job and they feel like there's you know, too much communication. And then you'll have managers who are there to manage and they, they recognize the need and they have the drive and they need to make sure that they're the, connecting the pieces. They're understanding the strategy, making sure everybody's on the right page, making sure the right people are doing the right work at the right time, uh, that nothing's being missed. And they'll probably feel like there's never enough communication. And so you have to find the balance between the people who uh, never want to communicate and the people who always want to communicate. And the best way I have seen to do that is to set up a very strong and regular communication culture. As an athlete, what we would do is have, we'd have a regular weekly meeting, you know, where we would review everything. We'd have an annual meeting. You know, when there were big races or big projects, we would have, you know, epic, you know, hours long meetings, you know, debating the small points of, of execution and what needed to happen. Uh, on a daily basis, we would have communication, you know, to the individuals. But as, you know, what we were trying to do as a, you know, as an Olympic team was actually quite simple. It's like building a brick wall. So the, you know, you, once you learn how to lay a few bricks, you just have to lay the bricks faster <laughs> and faster and faster and faster. You know, where communication becomes more important is when, say, for example, uh, we haven't even talked about this. It's a great metaphor, rowing across the ocean where you're going into the uncharted, the unknown. And when, when we put together this project to row across the Atlantic Ocean, it, it was so important to make sure that we were, that we had regular scheduled communication leading up and preparing and regular debriefs that we were able to communicate, you know, our challenges in safe spaces. And so what I'd, what I've noticed now from an organizational standpoint, you know, when you have systems of communication set up, you know, and I'm a big fan of this woman on the West Coast, actually, her name is Shannon Susco. If you're familiar with her, wrote a book called The Metronome Effect, and then wrote another book, The Three Hagway, and now Metronomics. And the foundation of what she began to speak about was this, you know, idea called the metronome effect, which is when you set forth a, you know, a system of communication, it starts to reinforce itself. And the system of communication reinforces itself. Then when you as the leader leave, it, it continues. And the systems, it's a very simple system. You've probably seen it in other, you know, entrepreneurial models, but, you know, have the daily stand up, the weekly meeting, you know, the monthly target setting, the quarterly, you know, the quarterly big target setting that should tie into the one year goal that ties into the three year goal that ties into the BHAG, right? The Vern Harnish Rockefeller habits. Yeah. Yeah. Rockefeller habits. Yeah. So she's a student. Yeah, she's a student of uh, you know of Vern, and obviously Rockefeller uh, certainly understood it, you know, a hundred years ago. And the like, so from a communications standpoint, 
the most important part is, is to take time, take time for communication. We often feel like there is not enough time for communication because we want to do. We feel like there's, I need to do this. I can't communicate it. But what ends up happening in the long term is that if we do not communicate enough and we do not communicate effectively, then we end up creating more problems. And so the, you know, when in doubt, communicate, you know, when in doubt, hire people who will over communicate on your team, you know, pick over communicators versus under communicators, because that will, you know, and then the system, but it it comes down to the system. If you have a very solid system of communication, we talked about the 4DX method earlier. There's a lot of these systems out there. And that at the end is a communication system where you're measuring every single day and the or everything, and you're revisiting it every single week, and you have this conversation, and you don't, you're not measuring for the sake of holding people to the fire. You're measuring for the sake of supporting people and stimulating conversations and stimulating communication. So it's, you know, where are you on your metric? Let's have a conversation about it. Do you need more resources? Do you need more support? You know, are you red, yellow, or green? We want to try to be in the yellow, but if you're in red, I'm going to give you extra attention. Because that's an indicator that we either need to change your goal and target or, you know, change the amount of support that you're receiving. So I can't emphasize enough the importance of communication and, you know, the, the, you know, the ideas in the book, you know, there's certainly tactics, right? They're tactics that you can apply to a larger system. And if you're looking for long-term success in, in building an organization or building even a relationship, right? That's a strategy with your, my wife and I, like we've got regular sessions of like, we've got our, we just went through our yearly planning. Every new year's we sit down and we talk about everything. What do we want to do more of? Da, da, da. And then we, every day we've got a, like a 10 minute stand up where we go back and forth and figure out what we need to do. And, you know, and then there's lots of communication on the weekends and the same sort of thing within an organization just making sure that there's a structure where there's lots of there's formalized communication and then there's lots of informal communication uh that's that's going back and forth and you know now that we've moved into a virtual world you know formal you know have the zoom meeting have the the miro board up you know making notes writing things down making have the the scorecard having strong discussions and then throughout the day like sending texts having phone calls having conversations making sure that everybody's aligned and the further you move up the organization the greater your responsibility to stimulate uh, both formal and informal communication that is effective and on point is you know that is your responsibility as the leader to really stimulate that and that that comes from behaviors that comes from culture you know the foundation we talk about culture business culture you know language is the driver of culture right language is the driver of culture you look at some like there is i think it was in sardinia uh, there's a form of of italian or latin that developed there where they don't have you know a future tense in their language you know, because, you know, life is so good and you just had to, like, it just provided for you because you're in such a a, a great place to be. You know, going up, up to Germany, you know, they've got, you know, three future tenses. Well, like, Germany is a harder place to live in. You know, it's uh, got to plan a little bit more, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got the, ups- the upside, the base case, and the downside. <laughs> we don't know which way things are going to go. So let's talk future. <laughs> 
Oh, wow. I never, that's the first time I'd ever heard that. That's interesting. And so, think about the language that you have in your culture. And it was really great organizations do this. It weirded me out the first time I was exposed to it because I had such you know informal exposures to culture. But you see it, large organizations done well really understand how to talk to one another. And they may even have their own dictionary of, of, of isms that are terms that are used in the company that aren't necessarily in the modern vernacular, which, which I find quite interesting. The, uh, that's a wonderful spot to kind of tie it up. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to jam on? I think I'll just bring it back to the idea of values, you know, and it's as values are something that are not understood by enough people. Uh, and so my, the ironic thing is I don't write about it in my book. Like I, I hint on it and, uh, I touch on it. I mean, what, to some extent, a lot of the ethics that you have may be values that you believe in or that you're suggesting, hey, if you want to be successful, incorporate some of these as your value. Am, am I off there? Well, it's an ethic is a principle, which is a rule, right? Ethics are informed by principles, which are rules. And rules are informed, are, are essentially decisions, and decisions are informed by values, and values are informed by beliefs. So, in a hierarchy of, you know, what, you know, what relies on what, an ethic relies on a, you know, on principles which rely on a, on a value. And so, values underpin each of these ethics. And they've become, you know, the ethics are these rules that I've, I've laid out because of, because of this locus of control. You know, acknowledging that there's so much in life that can work out and there's so much in life that can't work out. And so if you're focusing on yourself, if you're a growth oriented individual, then, you know, then these are some of the rules that have come from my personal value set. And one of the gifts and one of the surprises of writing this book was that it gave me time for pause and reflection. The, especially having written a book and wanting to write a book that wasn't just a story, but was a learning legacy and a growth legacy. So it forced me to go a couple layers deeper than, you know, than just writing a story and figuring out, okay, what do these lessons actually mean, you know, to the individual who's not an Olympic rower or hasn't had this experience necessarily. And that's what I would encourage every individual to do. You know, and this is it's often what I do with with coaching clients or even with uh, larger organizations is, you know, not necessarily write a, help them write a book, but help them reflect upon their life and think back on their life and understand, you know, and what you'll see with your values. And I put this at the back of the of the of the book is an exercise I really enjoy doing is is breaking down your life in week. You know, it comes from uh, the Wait But Why blog. I forget the name of this guy, but he writes he writes a great blog, uh, Wait But Why, and uh, talks. And this idea is uh, is to look at your what life and and his idea was to look forward with that and just say, hey, look, you've got a limited time. What are you going to do with the rest of your week? What I decided to do is actually use it and look backward. And so we break down our life into weeks and we write it down. And it's kind of like doing a lifeline if you've ever done that from a reflection standpoint. But you start to identify themes and you identify high points, you identify low points. 
And the high points in your life are the points when you're living your values. The low points in your life are where a value has been violated. You know, change is not a crisis unless a value has been violated. And and by understanding what your values are, then when you inevitably face change and you inevitably face those difficult parts in life, you know, whether it's, you know, a business fails, a marriage fails, a career fails, a, you know, a body part fails, a, you know, you know, you enduring that change, it is less of a crisis. And if you'll have noticed, like some of the most chill people you've ever met and the grounded, peaceful, wonderful people you've ever met have gone through the most horrific things you could ever imagine. And why is that? Well, because in the face of crisis, you know, and you're forced, you're absolutely forced, you know, whether it's consciously, you know, through a structured way of, uh, you know, identifying your values, structuring your goals to live with your values, or whether it's in a more organic way, which I would argue is more difficult and takes more time, but you end up finding a way to live, you know, in alignment with your values. And that's a way to live with, with peace, to live with gusto, to live in a way that, you know, enables you to focus on what you can control. And that's the ultimate thing that you can control. You know, identifying your values and setting your goals based to live those values more often, setting your goals to achieve, you know, setting your purpose uh, so that you'll live your values more often, you know, setting your goals so that when you do achieve them, it enables you to be more in alignment with your values. That's the, you know, that's the crux. And I think that's what I'd, I'd leave people with. And I, I guess I'd encourage people to read the book. You know, I put an incredible amount of, of effort into it. It's an audio book. Uh, we've, we've got videos that we're putting up there. We're almost done loading them up. They've all been done produced. There's, if you're really a cheap ass person, you can just listen. We've loaded up the audio book for free on YouTube. So you don't even have to buy it. It's a textbook. Like I've, you might be able to see the the pages I've tabbed, right? And like it's there's a lot of information. So if you if you want to learn to succeed, if you want to learn to be responsible for your own life, and at the end of the day, if you want to succeed, you have to be responsible for your own life. This book is a great read across a myriad of different areas that you need to be responsible for. So big fan of of reading it, Adam. It was very enjoyable and, and reinforced a ton that was already in there. And then things that weren't that I said, okay, now I have to understand that more. So that was a, a beautiful read. Highly recommend people go pick up a copy. And where can they find you? Well, find me on, uh, I'm most active on Twitter or LinkedIn. Or you can go to my website, which is valuesdrivenachievement.com. You know, we just launched it this year and the, yeah, valuesdrivenachievement.com. And I'm pretty accessible on social and, you know, and even through the website. So yeah, always keen to have those sporadic interactions <laughs> with individuals. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I appreciated it, Adam. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy. Clint Murphy.